This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by David Hughes. Dave, not a lot been going on, mate. <laughs> um, I'm, yeah, I'm bet, sure you've enjoyed your, uh, your two days off. I was trying to, mate. Uh, yeah, I was trying to, but it was it was hard with everything that was going on, let me tell you. Uh, it was a very, for football fans, I think it was a very emotive couple of days, wasn't it? Um, it's still all very raw and fresh for us, obviously with it being Wednesday. Um yeah, wild, wild couple of days. Uh, I'm sure we'll. I'm sure we'll get into it. Well, it has been absolutely nuts. Like I've never seen anything like it. This is my first experience of something like this happening while I've been, I suppose, working in football, and it's crazy. Especially when your specialised field really is the whole analysis, tactics, data type stuff. The political side of football, I don't touch anywhere near as much. So when all this kind of goes down and you sat trying to write the tactics piece, I kind of, uh, I think I sent you a message, Dave, saying it's, it's, it's like writing about a summer holiday that you're looking forward to this summer and how good it's going to be. And then you take a look to your right out your window and the apocalypse is kind of happening. It, it, was, it was a little bit like that. So absolutely I insane. The, I think the message was something along the lines of, You've picked a few good days to go off. Maybe stay off a little bit longer if you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely uh, crazy. Um, wild. So, as I said, it's not it's not really our bag. Um, all this sort of stuff, but because it's so big, because it's, the, the news is just crazy, and it now seems to be over and done with. We're recording on the Wednesday, early afternoon. Probably important to put that in there, considering how quickly things are. Uh, Things have been transpiring lately. So we are going to talk about it. We are going to address a little bit about, you know, FSG in particular. This is Liverpool podcast. But we're going to try to do it in a bit of an analysing and way, I suppose. Um, and then obviously a little bit of touching on Leeds and a look ahead to, I think it's Newcastle United on the weekend. So, but first of all, Dave, I mean, this Super League stuff, I mean, what's it, what's it been like for you? What's what's what are your thoughts on it first? I mean, there's so many different ways to come at it, isn't there? Um, initial thoughts were, I, I'm I'm bearing in mind that you know, all our regular listeners listeners know this already. You know, we've got a good core group, but there may be the odd one or two who are jumping in who, who don't normally listen. Uh, I'm I'm not a Liverpool fan. You know, I haven't grown up a Liverpool fan. Um. But even just from a general perspective, uh, and even if, if it was a Liverpool fan from that perspective too, I just thought as a, as a scheme, as a plan, it sounded horrendous. Um, I think the the I the thing that I found really difficult to come to terms with was the closed shop idea. I just didn't like that. I don't like a sport without a rewards. For merit, if you know, you know, kind of warranting your position. Uh, I don't like the way the uh, we'll we'll have America listeners. I don't love how the NFL works uh, and other similar sports. I, I don't like that there isn't any kind of promotion relegation. Uh, I know they do things to to have way around it, but it's just 
I just didn't like it, Josh. I did not like it one bit. And okay, Liverpool, one of the teams who, quote unquote, were going to benefit from it. But I think even from a Liverpool point of view, it was a really bad idea. And I think it shows by how many people called out the club, how many Liverpool fans, you know, staunch Liverpool fans who, who kind of, you know, always lean towards giving the club the benefit of the doubt because it's, you know, it's who they love. Uh, for for many people, it's, it's the passion, um, and for so many of them to be so vocal, like going against something they love so much, I think it just shows how bad it was. Um, yeah, I just I wasn't happy to be honest, Josh. And I mean, what about you? Obviously, being you know a Liverpool fan all your life, and what was that like? It was disappointment, really, above everything else. I, I think the first feeling that I felt, I just felt guzzled, um, really down. And you know, you know, you mentioned about the closed shop stuff there. I think what I was more surprised by, obviously the closed shop stuff is quite ridiculous anyway, but what I was more surprised by, I couldn't believe that nobody at the club knew about this happening. I thought it was absolutely insane to go and announce something like this without even running it by the the best manager in the club's thirty past thirty years past the, a title-winning team. You know, no one had a single clue that this was coming. And that that's such a mad approach to take for something that is going to be, if it was pushed through, it was going to be groundbreaking, it was going to be new, it was going to be unprecedented. So to, to not even run it by the people who are going to actually have to make that change on the, on the pitch and, and all that sort of stuff... It was mental, honestly, mad. And I, it, it, it's all seemed to me. I tweeted last night. It's all seemed to me very, very rushed. I think it's been, in, I think it's been planned for years, but I think it's got to a point in the past couple of months, maybe, where they've kind of realised we need to really push this through now. And the reason for that is because UEFA were quickly working on a new Champions League format that they were announcing on a specific date. Big clubs in Europe are having bad seasons. You know, Liverpool out of the Champions League at the minute. Juventus is slipping. Um, you know, teams like that not really doing particularly well. The debt of Barcelona and Real Madrid in particular is ridiculous and they need a way out of that. Juventus's squad is a mess. Um, obviously, there's no sta- there's no fans in the stadiums, so any kind of backlash is limited because of the lack of fans in stadiums. So it felt, it felt rushed. Because they, they were desperate to get it through so quickly. And because of that, it just looked like such an amateur job. It looked put together on Microsoft Paint. It was it was a mess, honestly. Um, and, you know, just on that point before you... Sorry, mate. Just on. on that point quickly before I let you carry on. I do wonder whether the intention was, although they said it was, I do wonder whether the intention was to announce it on Sunday or whether it, it was leaked and whoever was going to basically leak it, it you know i can't remember who reported it first say it was it was at the telegraph or someone i can't remember but um i wonder if they basically give them a said to him look this is getting this is going to be run on sunday so if you because if you want to announce it you need to do it today because the deadline seemed to just be getting pushed further further back it it, it just feels such a hash such a mess that I wonder whether they, they were even planning on actually releasing the information on Sunday or whether they wanted to try and iron out a few kinks first but didn't get the opportunity to do so. 
Yeah, I mean, from a Liverpool perspective, I was disappointed in in the owners. Obviously, uh, it, I, I don't think that you can put this on a club. For me, this is not a club thing. Nothing to do with the fans. Nothing to do with the players. Nothing to do with Klopp. Nothing even to do with the sporting director. As far as I'm aware, um, complete ownership deal. So, from an FSG perspective, massively disappointed. Um, and this episode's probably gonna be a little bit controversial for some listeners because it's FSG at a sensitive subject in the Liverpool's fan base. So there'll be people listening to you now who will definitely disagree with me, you know, and there'll be some who maybe agree, but. For me, when it comes to FSG, I'm not F- FSG out, and I'm still not. And uh, it'd take quite a bit for me to get there. Um, and the, the reasons for all that, it, I'm, we're going to get into. I'm going to. There's a few reasons I want to point out because I think it's really, really easy to see the negative side of what they've done since taking charge. But I think what they've done positively is a little bit more hidden. And needs highlighting a little bit more. Um, so I'm going to try to do that a little bit while still remaining, you know, unbiased and stuff. But from an outsider's perspective, Dave, obviously, you know, an Everton fan and things, what's your perception of FSG? What do they look like as owners to you? Um, it, this is, I, I can see why, where the conundrum comes from this one because it is really difficult. You know, I think what they do really well. Um, is they make Liverpool sustainable and their success more sustainable um, because they're not a group who've come in and, and just ultimately keep, you know, dipping into the money pit, trying to throw money at problems and resolve it. I think you've seen a lot of examples of that happening in the Premier League. Ironically, I think if you look across Stanley Park and Everton, they've had, they've had to do something like that where um, obviously they're kind of having to pay a lot of money, bring in, you know, spend a lot of money on players who aren't maybe transforma- transformational signings, just decent players and, and try and build a squad of them to make Everton more competitive. Uh, but yeah, I think FSG have done really well in terms of making Liverpool more sustainable and, you know, the kind of bringing in revenue to, to use as profits as, as opposed to being reliant on, on their own money. Which I you know it does frustrate people. I get that because if you had like City's owners in, you know, Liverpool are attractive enough where they could probably have an ownership in place like that, and they'd be be able to spend you know two hundred million a summer or whatever, or within an FFP at least anyway. Um, but that is a positive that they are making Liverpool sustainable. On the other hand, uh, there's a lot. I'll be honest, I don't like about FSG. Um, I think, you know, the, the actions, it's pretty clear that they've got almost like an Americanized philosophy on sports, things that have worked well over there, they're trying to implement over here. Um, and they don't seem to be too impacted by things like increasing tickets prices, which is a really contentious issue in here in a city like Liverpool. They, you know, they obviously tried to bump up the prices to, I think, it was £77, didn't they, a couple of years ago, and the fans protested against that. I think the furlough thing was a massive mistake this time last year, uh, something that they kind of were willing to do again. Um, I think 
just to summarize because I don't want to go on too much. Morally, I don't like what FSG are. It's as simple as that. I, morally, I don't like what they do. Whether there's any room for that in this modern football industry is another question, but that's what I don't like about FSG. In terms of what they've done since they've come in, making Liverpool sustainable, successful as we've seen, you know, finding ways to uh, make the right purchases in the transfer market, being very savvy, uh, you know, the recruitment's been first class for about five years now without spending huge sums of money. All that needs to be applauded. You know, that's, that's really good business stuff. And maybe it's that business sense that they've got that sees the morals almost pushed to one side. But at a club like Liverpool in this city, you know, Everton Liverpool in this city, socialist city, all these things are huge. You may be able to get away with that in, di- in different clubs around Europe, but here they're huge. And I think FSG had just struggled to grasp that. Yeah, I think you've you've summed that up pretty well, to be honest. And I, I would probably share your opinion. Um, firstly, I think in, in terms of the mistakes they've made in the past, I have no issue. Well, I have, I have issue. I, I, I'm not particularly inclined to hold a grudge regarding stuff like that. If, if, huge if they are willing to turn around and own the mistake and apologise. And each time they have done that. So, and, and you know, some people in clients will overlook that. I think that's a big thing, you know, for a, for a, a billionaire company sort of thing to to face up to a decision that it's made and recognise that it's a bad move, I think is a big deal. And I think it's a big deal in life when you come across people. I think it's a big deal to, to own your mistakes. And FSG have always been willing to do that. So, mm. That's something that I will always applaud. I, I think that's a big deal. Um, and one of the reasons I think it's a big deal, by the way, is because you, you won't get that with a lot of other ownerships. Like, like for example, at the time of recording, we're still waiting, I think, for a Glazer apology. And that's highly unlikely to come, I assume. <laughs> um, Probably right. <laughs> yeah. But but on, on in terms of this one, this mistake that they've made, I, I can't defend them. I, I they don't. I don't think they deserve defending either. I think this one, everything that's going to come their way as a result of this and the groveling maybe that they're going to have to do, is justified. You know, they, I'm not going to defend them when it comes to this this decision. I think it was absolutely daft to go about it the way they did. So naive, and I think the big frustration about them is these mistakes. Although I have no issue with them being made, because I think you you ultimately need to make mistakes to be better. They keep making the same or very similar mistakes, and that's what's frustrating. It's like seeing someone burn the hand in fire, and then a few months later, put the same hand in the same fire, and then a few months later, put the same hand in the same fire. What are you doing? Just stop it. Just coming then, in from different directions, doing it, and open that, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's all right, yeah. And uh, it, it's not even a case of stop putting your hand in the fire. It's just, before you do it, just talk to us. Just consult with, with the fan base. You know, Liverpool's fan base is massive and FSG have really played into it, especially on the marketing side. You know, this means more and all that sort of stuff. It's because of the support in the stadium. But, when it comes to these kinds of decisions, big, big moves, just talk to us. I, I, I don't know why they don't do it. And, I, and, 
they've been very good in the past at learning from previous happenings in the sporting industry, I'd say. But when it comes to the, the cultural side of the club, you know, their tradition, f- fan beliefs and things like that, values, they don't seem to be learning particularly much. And uh, that, for without doubt for me, is, is the biggest concern attached to them. And it's something that they do need to improve. And as I said, I do like that he apologises. But this, this apology just felt a bit... You know what did you expect? <laughs> mm, yeah. What what yeah. was you thinking? Like, yeah. I don't mind a genuine apology when you've went into something and genuinely not realised. But how could you have not realised with, with this? How how was it not twigged beforehand? Where someone said, "I'm gone." Might be a bad move. You know, should we think about this or should we run it by Jurgen Klopp at least? I mean, it's just mad. Um, yeah. Going to add on that one, Dave. Or? Yeah, no, I agree. I just I think they're forever underestimating. You know the, the the kind of implications these actions have. I think they expect a little bit of backlash in parts. Um, you know, I, I have no doubt they expect a back, backlash from UEFA. Uh, you know, they expect expected a few things to be said, but they just underestimate how kind of passionate people are about this stuff. Again, the big thing for me, what really stood out was. I thought, and I'm just using Liverpool fans as the example. You know, I'm not playing up to the crowd, but it's a Liverpool podcast. It's the most relevant. I just thought the way Liverpool fans on the whole, barring one or two who are maybe really afar anyway, so it doesn't really matter what's going on. Maybe the the new Liverpool fans and they only want to see the the big fixtures anyway. But I think 90% of the Liverpool fans were like, this is a terrible idea. You know, we... I'd probably say above 90%, you know. Maybe, maybe you know it's it's hard, isn't it, to get a full picture from from what basically an echo chamber of the likes of social yeah. media and people you speak to. Definitely, people I've spoke to personally have uh, been very critical of it. Um, I've seen examples of the opposite on social media, but as I said, it's few and far between. And with the greatest respect, it doesn't look like maybe authentic. You know, Liverpool fans who've been there for many years, type thing, or you know, just enjoy football. Maybe it's. It's, it's newer Liverpool fans who are jumping on the jumping on the bandwagon. I can't see a lot long a lot wrong wrong with it. But what I was going to say anyway, get back to the point. I think the way it, Liverpool fans have kind of been like, look, we really enjoy we really enjoy you know winning these pinnacles again, being the best team in England, best team in Europe, uh, picking up you know what is it four trophies over the last eighteen months or something. Um, that's all really good, but you, we want that on merit and we want that to continue being the case as opposed to it being this, you know, closed shop where you, you're guaranteed to just be in that in the same division every year and getting a much better opportunity than everyone else. I just think I'm just so impressed because, as I said, it's so easy to have like an ego about it and be like, well, we're 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 so good, we're brilliant that we we deserve this. But it's it it it's felt to me like the argument's been like, no, the part of it is is you know earning the right to be successful and go and win things as opposed to it being handed to. You. Um, and I just think it's been impressive, and thankfully the reaction's been the same for most of the other, you know, quote unquote top six sides. It's a it has been a really good response. Um. I just it would be nice if it would continue into 
the Champions League reforms because I don't think they're that much better, to be honest. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I think a few of them reforms are to appease these bigger clubs who uh, seem to feel a sense of entitlement, really. And that's not how football works. You're not entitled to anything. And any team that goes onto a field and thinks that they're entitled to something will probably get overrun and will realise before very quickly that um, that's not the way it works. You need to commit to everything. You need to, you need to earn your right to, to win the games, basically, to perform at yeah. the highest level and stuff. So, But I think from an FSG perspective, I just need to kind of highlight maybe why it's a bit of a dangerous game. I feel like it's a bit of a dangerous game to, for the solution to be FSG out or something like that. Um, I think the solution, although it's been the solution for a while and it feels a bit overplayed now, I think the solution is more along the lines of, of bridging the gap in communication, you know, like kind of just getting a bit closer as opposed to the way that they currently operate. Because as owners, I I think they've been really, really good, sp- particularly in a sporting sense, that their sporting expertise that they've applied since learning from America Um has been invaluable, really, and it's it's resulted in Liverpool really climbing to the top of Europe, top of the world, really, um, last season. And, you know, I think, for example, I've also piece on this, actually hasn't gone up yet, but it'll go up very, very soon. Um, but when, when he first took over, right, Anfield was deemed to be a bit of a mess, and the previous owners were talking about this new Stanley Park Stadium and all this, there was plenty of pressure on John Henry's shoulders when he when he took charge and to, to build this new stadium and stuff. And you know, based on his based on his understanding of sport, he he kind of looked at Anfield, looked at what had happened in the past, and made a bit of an alternative decision to to keep Anfield because of how difficult it would be to replicate what Anfield is in a complete new home. Um, and I think that's been a huge, huge move that stems from the sport and expertise held by FSG. Obviously, what they've learned in Boston, Fenway Park, and stuff with the Red Sox, and obviously s- some other Premier League clubs since have moved. You know, Arsenal have done it, Spurs have done it, West Ham have done it, Everton are going to do it, and certainly two of those clubs so far, I think. There's an element of regret there in terms of how difficult it's been since to recreate the same atmosphere. I'm not sure if you any if you have any fears attached to that day regarding Goodison. Uh, yeah, naturally, I think that the problem with Goodison is you've got no choice. No, if there was yeah, a choice yeah. to it, I think on that one, you there is no choice. You know, I haven't have to move because uh, Goodison is, is is tired as a stadium, and certainly in 2021, but. Uh, yeah, of course it is because it's it's a really intimidating place to go, and similar to Anfield. And obviously, if you if you completely change in the dynamics of the stadium, then it could because if you think now of those places you've named, I don't think you look as at West Ham as an intimidating place to go. You know, you see it as a tough game on the pitch. You know, you think it's oh, it's not a tough, easy place to go when you 
in terms of what's happening on the pitch. But in terms of intimidation, you don't really say West Ham is. And West Ham was always a quite intimidating place to go. Arsenal, you don't look at that, again, as an intimidating place to go. It can be a tough game on the pitch, but not intimidating. And, and Tottenham, I don't think you do with Tottenham either. Maybe it's a little bit early to be, you know, Tottenham have only had maybe a season before COVID kicked in in there. So I'd be a little bit unfair to be highlighting that one. But it is a risk, without doubt it's a risk. But I think I think you did more so, though, when you were facing Arsenal at Highbury or if you were facing West Ham at Upton Park. And I think the, the, the decision made by Henry back then, um, I think has been a really productive decision. And I think, above everything, really, it for me, it offers an insight into what I've already said, his, his sport and expertise that he's been able to apply at Liverpool. Liverpool were clueless. You know, I, I, I in the piece that I wrote, before Liverpool changed ownership, the final transfer window they had in the summer under Hicks and Gillette. Liverpool signed Paul Koncheski, Christian Poulsen, um, Val Morellis, um, a few others, just complete no marks who ended up doing nothing for the club, basically. Um, not really, not really Liverpool-level players, really. No, and you know, FSG were quick to move into some sort of age criteria. Initially, I think it was a little bit too young and there was a bit of conflict there. And now it's quite established. And although now it feels like common sense to sign players just as they're approaching the peak, you see so many clubs across the country who just go and sign players who are essentially finished. Um, And a lot of that stems from the ownership and the lack of direction, the lack of expertise. Like, you know, you think of the Glazers again, the, what, what the Glazers have done since Ferguson left. They, they haven't had a clue. They clearly haven't had a clue. No. I'm going to use Everton as a bit of an example, Dave, because I think Mashiri, although his intentions are good, far better than the Glazers and stuff, I still think there's an element of naivety to the way he's behaved and the spending he's kind of funded. He, he, he comes yeah. across to me as not particularly knowing exactly how to achieve what he wants to achieve. Yeah, I think uh, I think everything... To be fair, I think St. Marcel Brand's coming, it's, it's got better, there's a direction, but in terms of before that, and I'm not, you know, saying Brands is... They're still inside of a Brands, but I think if you look at those two first years when he come in charge, it was like, look at all this money, it, the success will now follow, but as we as as we witnessed, you know, closely, it didn't. It, it become a bit of a mess, and even now, because we we look at the squad, don't the pair of us, don't we? And on other podcasts and part of our job, and there's so much deadwood just from that period. It can be really disastrous if you get it wrong. And two clubs you've just named, Everton and United, have in the past, you know, really got it wrong and paid for several seasons after because you're stuck with these, you know, expensive assets that you can't get rid of. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think part of the reason Liverpool's whole operation has become a lot more refined, a lot more effective, is the interest in, in data analysis. Obviously, those who have seen Moneyball will have seen John Henry's character appearance at the end of the film. And uh, obviously, he was offering Billy Bean a bit of a mouthwatering contract because of his appreciation for what data can do to a sports institution. And... Liverpool have been on the data train now for, for over 10 years. Um, 
you know, Michael Edwards, who's now the club sporting director, he arrived at the club in, in 2011, I think, as, as head of analytics. And it's just kind of developed from there, really. There's now several PhDs behind the scenes, absolutely analysing the games to the nth degree and gaining insights through that, gaining findings through that, spotting little edges that we can exploit. And Liverpool are recognised as market leaders. And much of that stems from John Henry's early interest in using data to gain an edge over these wealthier opponents. And again, if we use Manchester United as an example, they are, as of only the past 12 months, starting to look into an actual data team that they're going to try and establish. I don't think it's established yet, but I'm, I think I've read about it being an eight-man team um, to deliver data insights regarding recruitment and stuff like that. Liverpool have had that in place for about 10 years. So, you know, again, in comparison to an ownership like the Glazers, FSG are on a completely different level when it comes to sport and intellect, you know, just, just applying inside a sports institution. And they've transformed Liverpool through the application of data, through the appointments of, you know, Jürgen Klopp, capturing Jürgen Klopp was massive. Manchester and by the United. way, Josh, Go on, on that, sorry, just because I think it's it's fair to point out to it, uh, you know, they, they kind of pulled the bu- uh, pulled the trigger quite early on Rodgers, didn't he, to get that done? Like, drew, drew against Everton, tough game, and still kind of, you know, not not doing horrendous, but when he was available, they knew he'd, he'd have the transformational impact he wanted. Yeah, and I think, as far as I'm aware, before they got Rodgers, Klopp was top of the shortlist. Um, or certainly near the top, but obviously the way Klopp is, his loyalty and stuff like that, he was he was unwilling to leave Dortmund. So, you know, FSG were away of what, what I suppose what Jurgen Klopp will become, well before he reached that stage of his managerial career. Mm. Um, and you know it's worth saying as well, Manchester United tried to get Jurgen Klopp, Edward Wood, I think it was maybe sat down with him. Described United as something like the Disneyland of the football world, was he? <sighs> um, and it just didn't convince him. He, he, he just wasn't sold. And obviously, by the time Liverpool chased him, FSG invited him to New York and stuff. Obviously, Klopp thought very differently, and FSG managed to to get him under the wing and, and capture mm-hmm. him and stuff. So, and Klopp's done a lot of transformation for Liverpool on the field, bridging the gap between the, the players and the supporters. Um, just so much. So, and again, you know, people think that Klopp just came, and he, obviously he did, but he, he got he was captured by by FSG. FSG wanted to get him in. There was a lot of talk at the time about Carlo Ancelotti, and I am inclined to think that maybe an owner who was a bit more naive, um, a bit less inclined to to look at the numbers behind the stuff and to look at specifically what's needed in the sporting sense would have employed Ancelotti because he. At the, at the time, he had a better CV than Klopp, so I, I think, you know, Edwards as well, appointing Edwards as as sporting director, you know, the club's first ever sporting director, and I think at the time, one of the one of the first few that had been appointed in the Premier League. That is an American thing, you know, that stems from the concept of a general manager, mm. which is presence in, uh, in the likes of baseball and stuff. Um you know, for Liverpool to do that again was a big move, but again it stemmed from FSG's sporting sporting expertise and Liverpool have really benefited from that over the years. It's one of the reasons why Liverpool have such an incredible team at the minute. 
which is one of the reasons why I don't think you can really focus too much on the whole net spend thing. Although it's a little bit frustrating at times, especially in the January just gone, I do believe they should have bought a centre-back. But in my opinion, net spend doesn't really indicate much more than your ability to, to sell high and buy low as long as you've got a good squad. If your squad's strong, that's always it offers an insight for for me. Um, mm. And I think in comparison to other teams who've been inclined to spend more over the years, but their current squad is nowhere near Liverpool's level, so that spending has, has been, you know, redundant. Yeah. Goes back to that point at the start, doesn't it? That they've they've basically been really good business-wise uh, for, for a long time now. You know, it didn't take them long to start really positively impacting the club from a business point of view. It's just, you know, as, as I said at the start, morally, maybe there's no room for, for the kind of beliefs and things that Liverpool, you know, celebrate as a, as a culture around the club. Uh, and I think the, the, the clash now going forward, because it's been bubbling for a while, you know, there's, if you think about the success Liverpool have had and everything you just said for the last few minutes there, if you think about all that, it would it seem ridiculous to think that so many people would be unhappy with the owners. And this is before what just happened, by the way, this week. It would seem ridiculous, but yet it's there because there's this friction about the kind of morals FSG have and uh, how how they do things. And you know, I, I think after this now it's gonna be really difficult to settle back down to to kind of just be in a, a happy relationship again. I don't really know what happens. I mean, it could do, but it does to me personally, Josh, just from the outside looking in, like this might be a point of no return. I don't know what that means because I don't think you can just decide. Uh, if you're FSG, you just go, you know what, forget this, forget that last 10 years. We'll just put the put the pill on the market and move on. You know, I think FSG mm. have invested too much into it now and, and whether that would even be a good thing for Liverpool, I don't know. Well, one, one concern I've got with that is, let's say they do put Liverpool on the market. W- what are the chances that the replacement owners w- will be better? You know what I mean? It's 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 re- That's a really sensitive topic, that. Because I think it's highly, highly unlikely that they're going to be better in a sporting sense. But, and, and the model sense remains to be seen. I think in an ideal world, to be honest, Dave, what you want from an ownership group is the sporting sense of FSG and almost a model sense of the way Everton have been run in the past few years, really. Yeah. I think if you were to merge the two of them, you've kind of got a perfect situation there. Mm. But Everton maybe lack what Liverpool have got and Liverpool in the past few years lack what Everton have had. Um, Everton have always retained that that connection to society, that connection to the city. Um, I think the more clients are essentially do what is right from a Liverpool perspective, from a Scouts perspective, really. Um, whereas FSG, Liverpool are a bit more global in the thinking, and I understand why. But at the same time, you can't ever forget your roots. So, yeah, I don't want this to turn into some, you know, mad positive FSG rant or so. I just think it, it was it's really important to provide a balanced view on, on the ownership which is difficult at the current time because of what's happened. 
but I'm I am just inclined to think you know be be careful what you wish for if if you do think Liverpool needs to sell to someone else because there's every chance that that next person won't have the sporting expertise and he might also fall short in in the moral department. You know, it's it's really difficult. So, it, Josh, is, is it on. for you better the devil you know, as they say? Uh, what do you mean by that specifically? <laughs> so it means, so basically it's like uh, it's a term of yeah. So better to you know almost know the shortcomings of what you'll already have than potentially uh, you know going into a new kind of relationship, working relationship with with someone else who you know might have them a lot worse. At least you know FSG's faults, but you also know the positives where there's. You know, uh, you don't know what another potential buyer might bring with them. What you know, what yeah. kind of issues? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I think that definitely comes into it. And just another thing on that, you know. But I think people are inclined to to want an owner that just spends. People want an owner really a bit like Abramovich, I suppose, who just mm. pumps money into the club relentlessly, and every year they make a loss in the transfer market because they're just going and buying Kai Havertz and. Timo Werner and all this and I think although that is obviously a nice thing for supporters to get excited about new signs and stuff I think that is also very much in conflict with what Liverpool are as a club you know although Liverpool have been conflicted with FSG's model perspective at some points I think an owner coming in for Liverpool and going and spending you know 200 million on, on, on Mbappe or something that I, for me, that's very much in conflict with Liverpool as a, as a city, as a club. It's just it's just not the way I want my club to do things. I like the way Liverpool have done business in the past few years. I like that we that we run in a sustainable manner. I like that we've got no debt. I like that we don't just go and buy backups for sixty million. You know, a fourth choice centre back for forty two million or so from a from a team that's just been relegated. You know, yeah. Liverpool obviously spend. You know, don't get me wrong, but. The excessive wealth that gets really almost naively used and careless almost at times, that would also conflict with Liverpool as a club. It, you know, it's difficult to to be really aligned in that sense in the, in the modern day just because of everything that's happened to the game over the past few years, you know, the globalisation and stuff, the foreign owners and things. Mm. Um, yeah. It really is difficult balance to strike. But I just wanted to, you know, in light of everything that's happened... All the negativity surrounding FSG, the deserved negativity surrounding FSG. I just wanted to ensure that you know supporters are aware of the sport and positives that they've delivered over the few years. They, they are the reason for me that Liverpool are one of the sharpest clubs out there. Really, when it comes to recruitment, when it comes to data, when it comes to decision making, the the, the manager, the sporting director, the play, everything. You know, it's it's all been. Developed since we signed Christian Poulsen on, under the previ- previous ownership. Um, so, yeah, un- unless you've got much more to add on this, Dave, we can move on really to, to the games, but it's, it's obviously yeah. been an important topic really that we couldn't really overlook, could we? Yeah, no, we've uh, we've dedicated about 40 minutes onto it there. Um, I think what you said there was a, a good way to round it off. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens only from, from this point going on because... I don't think it's just going to be, uh, as they say, it's uh, 
what is it, tomorrow's chip paper. I think it might linger a little bit longer than that. Um, but yeah, no, I think we were right to look into it. Yeah, Bridges certainly need mending, I think. <laughs> yeah. This is a difficult one. This, as I said, they don't really deserve any kind of support at the minute. I, I don't think it's right to even try to understand their perspective. It was just a mad move. Um, mm. But it looks like it's the end of it anyway. It looks like it's it's kind of over. That, that, that 48-hour period, complete nuts, apocalypse, and then reverse will be acting like nothing's, nothing's happened. It's, it's crazy. But Well, I think it's so mad that nobody's even spoke about Mourinho getting sacked. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, it, nobody has even spoke about it. Which kind of sums up maybe where his career's at. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, 15 years ago it would have been big news and uh, obviously something else could quite, is quite easily gesunt it. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. No, no, but no, no one really spoke too much about the, uh, the Leeds United game either. And mm. I must be honest, when I was watching it and when Liverpool conceded late on, I didn't feel overly fussed. Because in that position at the time, I was like, well, what's the point? <laughs> We've yeah. already qualified for this franchise league. You know, it's, it's just this, this result even matter. Um, but thankfully, it did. Liverpool played, in my opinion, David, I think the first half was was really good. But the second half was one of them. It was very much a tale of two halves. Liverpool dominated the first, Leeds dominated the second. Mm. Uh, have you taken a look at the race map? Yeah, I have. Yeah, um, and it, I mean it, it perfectly summarizes what you said. You know, if you if you go into half time, obviously Liverpool get the goal one nil up and better side, um, deserving of the lead, you'd probably say. And then, yeah, second half, you made a really good point when we spoke away from the podcast, and you said about Liverpool just looking a little bit fatigued. And you know, if you think about it, you you you're playing. You're playing probably the fittest side in in the Premier League, and sometimes teams live on reputations like that, uh, and they're not always warranted. But I think Leeds are for me right up there. Um, they've played a lot fewer games as well than than Liverpool, um, and they probably had a little bit extra motivation, and you were chasing the game, you know, one nil down. So that kind of was the perfect storm for them to to kind of throw it on late. In the in the second half, and obviously get something out of it. Yeah, Liverpool actually won the expected goals, which I'm surprised about because Leeds had a few what felt like clear cut opportunities. Really, uh, Allison got us out of stick, I think, about three times before he eventually conceded. Mm. But the expected goals on the day still probably catches a draw. There's not much in it. One point eight for Leeds, two point three for Liverpool. And in terms of the shots, Leeds had 12, Liverpool had 17. And interestingly, Liverpool's possession only 40%, um, which is, I'm going to check it as I'm speaking, but is probably right up there with the lowest all season. Or um, right down there with the lowest. Yeah, right down there, yeah. In fact, it yeah. is, it's, it's level with the home leg against RB Leipzig. Both of those games, um, Liverpool didn't lose either of them, but both of those games, Liverpool posted 40% possession. So, strange. Um, 
I think this one, as you said, could be put down to a little bit of tiredness. I do want to flag how good Liverpool were in the first half, specifically in relation to Leeds' man-marking system. We did flag it last week, mm. and I think I wrote a piece on it. Um, but just the way Liverpool approached the man-marking scheme that Bielsa favours, I thought it was perfect. It was exactly what you need to cause that system problems. Lots of rotations, you know, no players in very few fixed positions. Lots of ball carries from the free man. So, say, for example, there was lots of mazy, mazy runs from Kabach um, and Fabinho at times. That was planned, I'm inclined to think, because of the man-marking scheme. They were the free men, so they go and drive forward and commit a man to them. Um, Firmino was dropping off into midfield, carrying a man with him, and then the space that opened up, Liverpool were darting into. Lots of blindside runs. You know, behind a player who's getting man marked, so really effective performance. I thought, and it should have been one in the first half. Liverpool should have scored more than one in the first half, but didn't. So frustrating, but you know, thankfully, I think West Ham lost. Yeah, they did to Newcastle, and Chelsea drew. So before we start speaking about Newcastle, Dave, uh, just quick thoughts on top four race. Yeah, well, you know what? I was before we come on air, uh, I was having a look at the table, uh, and it kind of just felt like we're we're in the same position, but we're just a game less now. Um, I mean, probably worth flagging as well that it was a good result on Friday night because Everton Tottenham drew, which you know, although Everton had, uh, for me definitely not in the Champions League race now, they have still got that lingering one game advantage and. If they won that game in hand, they'd, go, they'd just be a point behind Liverpool, which seems ridiculous because it feels like they've been terrible for ages. Um, maybe I'm being a little bit extreme there, but <laughs> yeah. So, in terms of Champions League race, I think the top three will stay as it is, um, and it's just really tough. I think every every weekend it'll it'll we'll have a, an idea of what's happening between now and the end of the season. I think there's about four or five game weeks left, and uh, it's for me. It's out to Chelsea, West Ham, Liverpool. Um, I'd be nice as it, from a neutral point of view. I'd like to see West Ham push both teams to the end, just because it's nice to see a new face in there. Um, I've just got a feeling, though, Josh. I'm not writing Liverpool off. You know, I don't. I don't want any uh, listeners or viewers to be getting annoyed with me. I'm not writing them off, but I've just got a feeling Chelsea may may edge you. Um, I don't know because I'm down myself now because I'm thinking two two cup competitions as well, haven't they? Champions League semi final, yeah. FA Cup final. You know, the I think I, think I, saw, I think I saw the tweet actually. I'm not sure if I'm right in saying this, but I think when they beat City, I think because of now the FA Cup and the Champions League and stuff, I think they play now every weekend, midweek, weekend, midweek, weekend, midweek until the end of the season. Uh, Liverpool have one game a week. I going into this actually, Dave. I sent a newsletter out last week on this exact thing, and I actually said at the time I thought it was out of Liverpool Leicester because I was so confident really that Chelsea would would do it because I mean the defense is ridiculous at the minute. Yeah. Um, the attack isn't firing as much, but when you when you're allowing just virtually nothing on the defensive side, it's going to help you a lot and. You know, I read Tuchel and stuff, so I, I thought Chelsea were going to do it. 
and I thought Leicester would maybe have a little bit of a wobble. But Leicester are now in a much better position because the, they've got a game in hand over the three teams you've just mentioned. And they're still above them anyway. So, I don't know. I think if we're close to Leicester in and around the final three games when they've got a really tough run and we've got an easy one, I think we can jump jump Leicester. But if it's out of Liverpool and Chelsea, flip a coin. You know, I'd, yeah, flip I, a coin, I, I haven't yeah. got a clue when it comes to that one. That's that's really hard, that one. Mm. But I do I do think, though, that what I've just mentioned there regarding the schedule, that, that certainly benefits Liverpool. You know, Liverpool with one game a week compared to Chelsea, but having to compete with Real Madrid and, you know, that's that's going to benefit Liverpool a lot. So, you know, we will see. Um, but to ensure that Liverpool are in this race, we need to beat Newcastle on the weekend. Mm. Yeah. Um, general thoughts on Newcastle, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel like we, <laughs> like we talk about them all the time. It's just being... Uh, and you know, no, no. Hopefully, I don't think no new, Newcastle fans will be listening. But yeah, hopefully yeah, not. <laughs> yeah, they've uh, they've outstayed their welcome. I think this 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 chapter of Newcastle United, at least, have outstayed the welcome in the Premier League. You know, not a not a nice side to watch, and you know, tend to be right down there on most performance metrics. That being said, Josh, just results I'm looking at here. By the way, just results. Uh, Unbeaten in three and scored two or more goals in each. It's, it's so very un Newcastle like, uh, and obviously they had a big win against West Ham, albeit West Ham were down to ten men. So, um, yeah, to answer your general thoughts, mate. Yeah, I don't love them. Do you know what? I'm, I'm actually looking at the numbers now, just some of the basic ones so far, and they're actually not as bad as I thought they were going to be in terms of. The, I've just looked at you know, the basics in terms of goals scored. Goals against expected goal difference per ninety uh, per match, and they're not actually in the bottom three for any of them. Like in terms of goals scored, for example, they've scored thirty five. That is more than seven teams, you know, including Wolves, including Brighton, Burnley, uh, Fulham, and in terms of goals against, they have conceded. Well, they're not. They're not that great when it comes to goals against Sheffield United, Southampton and West Brom are the only three teams who've conceded more but you know in terms of the XG though, so the XG4 and the XG against per match um, against each other they're about 15th but you know both around 15th, 16th best in the league, not too in between like a Southampton, Burnley type performance Yeah. so I don't know I expected a bit worse I, I think yeah, well, that's that's probably reputation. This is from last season. He looked, looked so bad last season. The first six months of this season, he was so bad. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking with you now. And to be fair, the underlying numbers are painting them as a team in around 14th to 17th. And and, and that's I think that's pretty much exactly where they are now, the F15. So for once, the underlying numbers uh, are quite accurate on this one. You know, they're kind of a, a bottom six or seven sides. Yeah. I mean, for, for shots per match, they are 15th. And shots faced, well, shots faced per match, they're actually 19th, which isn't too much better. But I've just saw something there, Dave. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to flag it for you. Do you know what I'm going to say? Is it going to be a shot attempted? They actually take more shots per match than Everton. Yeah, that's... That's, uh, that's quite amazing. Oh, 
I know, mate. I've been uh, <laughs> I've, all season. I've been. I mean, I, I'm already hated at Goodison because you know I'm I'm, I'm doing an analyzing Anfield every week. Uh, do a lot of the field where I'm very objective, as as people hopefully know by now. And whilst Everton have been winning all these games, I've been kind of whispering in the background. I don't think this is very sustainable, lads. And uh, <laughs> surely, surely enough, it's it's fell off a cliff a little bit. So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me to be honest, Josh. What I will say is Everton's um, expected goals per match is is considerably better. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that that obviously suggests that although Newcastle are taking more shots, Everton are taking better shots from better locations, basically. Uh, so that's a positive, but in terms of what Liverpool are going to face, yeah, it's it's very much, very much Newcastle, really, isn't it? It's, it's not, we've previewed them a couple of times on this podcast now, considering we've been going for a few years, and each time we don't really have a lot to add. Um, they don't really seem to change too much. They're still still playing three at the back, despite a bit of a shift to four at the back over like a two month period, maybe. Um, mm. 3-5-2 has been the formation the past two games. They've won both of those, so I expect that can, to continue. And I do think, above a lot of clubs, above, above a lot of teams in the league, they're probably a really good example of the whole um, you're only as good as your players shout, because I think specifically since Callum Wilson and particularly Alan St. Maximov came back into proceedings, they've just offered that difference on the pitch. You know, they're able to create something that or not and they can, they've got that spark and um, so you know if, you, if you're a non-believer in that go and look at Newcastle without those two players compared to with them mm, mm, yeah yeah there's I a mean, stark difference isn't it yeah I mean Liverpool are going to have to deal with those two because I think I think Wilson's been on the bench the past few um, but back, yeah. I, I expect yeah he's been on the bench the past two games at least I think but this game Considering he's been easing back slowly, he he can probably start this one, and I expect Saint Maximum on the same. So, it, and it's away from home, so it it could actually be a bit of a trickier game than you than you'd think. Um, <laughs> yeah, because players like that have a booster when they come back, don't they? And I've just had a look now. Wilson played over half an hour against Burnley and just under half an hour against Newcastle. So yeah, he's firmly going to start, and um, Saint Maximum's really good. He just he can never stay fit. I think he'd probably be getting tells it for bigger moves if he could. Yeah. But you know, I think I think generally their set piece threat, I'm just checking it now, I think it's generally better than normal. Uh no it's not. They've <laughs> 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 scored four goals from corners. Liverpool have scored five. Uh so I expected that to be a bit of an issue actually because we can see the set piece against Leeds and Leeds A aren't that great from set pieces yeah. and B aren't even the tallest side. So I expected to encounter more problems against Newcastle and Leeds with that one, but you know, maybe not, you never know. Um but yeah, it's gonna be a case of Liverpool dominating the ball. It's gonna be a case of breaking down a block and stopping counter attacks. So Liverpool are certainly nowhere near as good at doing that this season, as flawlessly as they were last season. But given that Newcastle are kind of safe, I mean, looking at the the odds on 5.38, yeah, they're pretty much safe according to 5.38. They've got Sheffield United obviously down, West Brom 98% likely to go down, Fulham 90% likely to go down, Burnley 
7% likely to go down, and then Newcastle 4% likely to go down. So they're pretty much safe. Liverpool have got, now that the Super League's gone out the pitch here, Liverpool have got a lot to play for. So you'd like to think that'll have an impact on, uh, on how the match goes, Dave. Yeah, I'm just looking at that home form and it's it, it's unbelievable bad it's been. Uh, Newcastle's? No, um, Liverpool's. Oh, okay. Yeah, just because obviously it's at home, isn't it? Um, and I'm just, I'm like, it, it's still that Villa Villa game is the only win I think in 2021, and obviously we're at, at the end of April, and I'm just like, I keep expecting. Basically, what I'm the point, what I'm leading to here, I'm just thinking, you kind of just expecting it to be a routine win, but Liverpool just haven't been doing them in Anfield this year, have they? Um, no, I think it's one of them. We we, we kind of need to. I mean, we say we say this a lot of the time lately, but we kind of need to get a lead in this one. This is going to be a difficult one to to manage if we don't really score first. And I think yeah. last time we faced these at Anfield, they scored first. Actually, I think I think Jethro Willems scored yeah, an absolute banger. Yeah, yeah. He did. Uh, top in Yeah, ask him to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, predictions on this one, Dave. Uh, yeah, I um, I'm still going to back a Liverpool win. Just because uh, you know you have to you have to back it without you think it, it should go and um, you know Newcastle won't be looking. At this is the game that they need to get the points in to just confirm that safety. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with Liverpool two 0 Yeah, I'm also going to go with two 0 But the 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 part of me that thinks this could be a, a lot to hear than many are expecting. This is not the Newcastle that really spiralled a few weeks back. They seem to be a, have a bit of a bounce lately. And whether that'll still be the case now that they may be on the beach, you know, we never know. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully we'll get the win and go into next week with something to play for, basically, because we have Manchester United, funnily enough. So uh, that'll be a good one to preview. So, yeah, Dave, thanks for joining us, mate. We will be back next week. Hopefully football stays normal between now and the next time you record. Certainly that wasn't the case last week. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. And, yeah, stick with the club. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.